This is According to Callus, and this would be part two of Helpful Definitions, which would make it episode 147. Here we go. We're going to discuss yesterday, or actually this morning it showed up, we discussed the various versions of conservative. Now we're going to talk about constitutional. And we'll talk about the various things related to all things constitutional, if you will. So, first of all, we have to look at our Constitution. It was created by 13 sovereign states. Now, the states that are referred to are actually, in fact, nations. At that time, state was synonymous synonymous <laughs> with nations. So, the state of France and the kingdom of Britain, or however you choose to phrase it, created treaties with each of these sovereign states of the 13 former colonies that were sovereign states. If you may recall, there was something called the Lee Amendment back on July 2nd, 1776, that declared there were 13 sovereign states and they created them out of the colonies. So the Constitution was designed to be a compact. Both, uh, or I should say, all three, Tom Woods, Brian McClanahan, and Chris Ann Hall would thoroughly agree with that definition that the Constitution was created out of a compact and the Constitution functions based upon what those sovereign states chose to delegate to the federal government. Indeed, the federalist system or federalism, if you prefer, another Friendly definition there means there are several levels of government. In this case, the sovereign states created a compact federal organization to handle things that they as individual states chose not to deal with, but thought that they would work together better to do, including international trade, treaties, uh, war making powers, um, creating the Navy. Which is not to say the sovereign states didn't retain lots of powers. That is indeed what the Ninth and Tenth Amendment directly refer to. The things we did not authorize you, federal government, to do, we retain. And what we ourselves retain is because of the people. Because we, the people, created the Constitution, which is in fact the highest law of the land. And everything is supposed to comply with the Constitution, which is in fact the highest law, not what someone else might consider it to be. So as we transition, and we've talked a little bit about the idea of a federal system in a compact theory, which is really not a theory, it's called a compact fact by a number of these scholars. The idea being that they created the federal government, they can recreate it, or they can join the federal government or they can leave it. Now this kind of gets you into some squishy area with people that get all sorts of upset because, you know, it says indivisible. Well, yes and no. Before we go further, let me go back and talk a little bit about the idea of a compact. So in a compact, several states have come together and agree to work together on something. And if they choose to separate and go different ways or end that compact, in other words, it no longer serves a function, then they go about their way and uh, that compact is said to be dissolved. 
the difference is, is we don't have a unitary state, but a lot of people think we do have a unitary state, which is that all things flow out of the federal government and everything is subservient to the federal government. And the federal government makes all the rules. And in fact, that is not the way it works. However, and now these are two more key terms here, the federal supremacists and the judicial supremacists think otherwise. Let me relay. So the federal supremacists will point to um, Article 1, Section 8. And if you'll allow me, I'll pull it up in my reference here. That would be the Constitution, in case uh, you weren't sure. Um, Article 1, Section 8. Well, while I'm looking this up, let me just continue by saying that the language of the time was quite clear, but apparently now we have challenges understanding me. So the end of uh, Section 8 uh, comes to final sentence and it says to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and other powers vested by this constitution and the government of the united states or any department that or office officer excuse me thereof so again we're making it clear that if they're necessary and proper in relation to the powers given by the constitution they can do it Apologize, had to clear the nose. So, long story short, so all the laws that are necessary and proper to be carried out because of the Constitution are permissible and to be supreme laws, right? Well, then, for further clarification, we go to Article 6, Clause 2. This Constitution and the laws of the United States, which should be made in pursuance thereof, which means because the Constitution gives us permission, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of these United States shall be the supreme law of the land. So, the judges in every state shall be bound thereby and anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary, notwithstanding. So, let's clear this up a little bit. The Constitution... And laws made that are in alignment or under the proper authority of the Constitution. Because remember, we already talked about this in Section 8, necessary and proper. It unfortunately doesn't give a super good definition of what necessary and proper all refers to. But prior to that, in the clauses, it gives specifics. So it refers back to it. And then when you get to Article 6, it says these laws that are made under the authority of the Constitution that which is given that authority, uh, are going to be the superior law. However, the federal supremacists then take this clause, Article 6, right? And they say, well, Clause 2 says that we can go ahead and any law made at the federal level is supreme. Well, no, that's actually not what it says. But federal supremacists, who also claim to be conservatives a lot of times, seem to forget that. And they think if they'll just get the feds to pass this law, they can fix everything. But that's not the way it works. That's not the way it was designed. And it's a violation of the whole entire area of a federalist system. It violates the nature and cause behind a compact where the states come together and give certain authorities. They're not giving all of that authority up. I mean, come on. Does that even make sense? 
Then let's jump to the next one. The judicial supremacists. These folks also use the same couple of uh, clauses here. And they say that, well, there was a couple of Supreme Court cases that say, if we, the Supreme Court, think that this is what the Constitution means, then therefore that's what the Constitution means. And because we determine that the federal government has done something that we approve of, that that becomes supreme over state law. When again, that authority is not there. It was never given. Um, And it's only because you had a few justices that thought they could make stuff up literally and nobody stopped them. And they kept producing papers and books that basically trumpeted this as being a good thing that we're stuck with this now. We pay the consequences. And again, conservatives make the same mistake time and time again. If we can just get a federal court to sign with us, we'll get our way. If we can just get a federal law to side with us, we'll get our way. Do I need to remind you about DOMA? Oh, you don't know what that is? Then I suggest you go look it up. All right. So we've touched on the idea of what's the Constitution and what's constitutional. We've referenced why there's a federal system and what that infers, right? So we have states that grant power to the federal government and allow them to do certain things on their behalf. We talked about how this is a compact, not a unitary state. In other words, they didn't cede all authority and power like someone might have done if they were in France, for instance. There was a limited power. Now let's talk about the reverse order down. The states created subdivisions within themselves, whether it's counties or parishes or cities or towns. And those cities, towns, parishes, counties are given certain powers on behalf of the state government, i.e. you can do this or you can do that in regards to division of property. You could do this or that in regards to, I don't know, restrictions on certain rights which I have a big problem with, but just go with me here. They also determine, you know, how you can break up property um, and just different uh, subdivisions have different authorities, but it's all controlled by the state. The state is the final arbiter. Now, what's interesting is a lot of these cities have taken to ignoring the state. And then, of course, if the state does nothing, they've now ceded their power to those cities, which is huge mistake, or the cities will go around the state and go to the federal government and try to get the federal government to weigh in on their side, which again is violating separation of powers. It's violating the necessary and proper clause because that's not an authority that was given to the federal government. There should be no law that even relates to that. So now that I've cleared that up, I've given you some of these helpful definitions Let's look at some applications. So, would you rather live in a unitary state where no matter what you did and how you did it, you were subject to the same exact law and application no matter where you were? When you consider that Texas is quite radically different than New Hampshire, and New Hampshire is quite radically different than, say, I don't know, Washington State, and Washington State is quite radically different than Florida, We can see why there's a natural benefit to be gained by the subdivisions, by this power being held within a geographic area. Likewise, if you look at, for instance, the state of Texas, we have four major cities. 
We have the big three, which would be Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, and then you throw in Austin. Now, if you want to get more creative, you've got, you know, El Paso, Amarillo, Lubbock, and then, you know, some of the suburbs, and then you've got uh, the <laughs> Midland, Odessa area, and, you know, so there's lots of cities. There's lots of these geographic high-density areas. Now, here's one of the things that's important to remember. When the governor, let's say, made a fatal error 18 months ago or whatever else, and instituted a statewide mandate, he failed to take into account the various significant differences between, oh, I don't know, Harris, Travis, Dallas, some of these counties and the population densities there, and some of the West Texas, East Texas, North, far Northwest Texas, I mean, even the Rio Grande Valley. These areas are sparsely populated. There are no large population centers which would be affected by that. And I'd mentioned this before, you know, when I first started this podcast, I talked about the idea, the ludicrous idea, if you will, of having a single rule statewide. Now, if we can see that and we can observe why there's lots of problems with that, and, and what we're gonna we're going to be gracious. We're going to say Dallas County or Harris County or um even Tarrant County, but Travis County or Bear County, these are different counties that you can choose to approach things differently because your population density or your population size within your county. And maybe there's some different restrictions or rules that you need to apply, and we're going to grant you that autonomy. We think that maybe you know better in your locality. Now, we're only going to let you go up to this point because you can't violate people's rights. You can't you can't ignore the constitutional restraints, whether it's the Texas Constitution or the federal Constitution, but we're going to grant that you probably know a little bit better what's happening in your county than we do down in Austin. So let's magnify that tenfold based upon the idea that constitutionally speaking, uh, we've granted certain authorities to the federal government, but for the purposes of this discussion, we're going to say now you have a unitary state. In other words, Everything flows out of D.C. Now, D.C. is the power center for the entire country, which is roughly 10 times the size of the population of Texas. And I don't know, let's say 20 times the size of the geographic area of Texas. And in 20s price stretch, let's dial that down a bit. Let's say eight times, 10 times, whatever. You get, you understand what I'm saying. It's significantly larger than just Texas, but population-wise, it's roughly ten times larger. And there's some folks that work and live in D.C. that are the mm, apparatics, if you will, apparatchiks, and they have determined what the proper policy is, and they roll that out nationwide, completely ignoring the fact that, you know, there's a huge difference between New Hampshire, Washington State, Texas, and Florida, but they're just going to roll this law or rule out, maybe it's even just a dictate from OSHA. And they're just going to say, everybody has to do everything the same way because that's the way we want it. Now, does that make sense to you? I mean, does that really seem like a good way to run government? Does that seem like an appropriate way that we would roll out a response? I think not. So therein lies the fallacy or the problem behind a unitary state. I mean, and even when we dial it down back to just the state of Texas, we saw the problems 
that occur when one person thinks that they know better than the entirety of the state. Of the, I think it's 254 counties within Texas, one person in one county thought that they knew what was best for all of us. It's a problem. So again, would you rather live in that unitary state or would you rather use federalism? And in federalism, you can go to a different place and it's a little bit different, a little bit better. Maybe maybe certain things are worse. I mean, there's trade-offs, right? So my home state was Wisconsin. Wisconsin's great about a lot of things. We have good weather nine months out of the year. We have beautiful natural lakes. We have lots of trees and forests. And we don't have snakes and alligators like you all do in Texas here or like we do in Texas here. However, for four months out of the year, well, as I said, nine months, so let's just be generous. Say three months out of the year, you probably don't want to go outside. It's really, really cold. And well, you know, they have a state income tax. Oh, and well, their property tax is pretty high too. And oh, well, you know, there's these other things that are not as good about Wisconsin. So it's a trade-off. Would you rather have natural lakes, beautiful forest, and temperate climate, the opposite side of what you have down in Texas? Or would you rather move to Texas and have maybe a, a better political environment, a, a better summer environment, right? Of course, for the three months out of the year in dead summer, you don't want to go outside because it's too stinking hot. But, you know, you can go in a pool or one of the man-made lakes or something. And we do have mountains, we have valleys, we have mesas, we have forests, we have swamps, we have everything. But there are certain parts where we got mm, some nasty little rattlesnakes and scorpions and alligators. And so, I mean, those trade-offs, right? Because our property tax is pretty high, but we have no income tax. The sales tax is slightly higher, but again, we have no income tax. A lot of things are far less expensive here than they were in Wisconsin notwithstanding the massive influx of people from California who buy homes here for stupid money, which is a different story altogether. But be that as it may, there are, th- there are pluses and minuses between those two states that I've lived in. Um, and once upon a time, Virginia was a really nice state, otherwise known as a commonwealth, just in case you're wondering. And I spent two years there. And I lived on Uncle Sam's dime on a Navy ship. And I got to visit Virginia Beach and Norfolk and several other notable areas. And it's interesting area. I didn't want to live there. I had no desire to put down roots there. Washington, D.C. was, you know, about an hour and a half, two hours away, depending on who's driving and what direction you go. And I just chose never to visit it. I just had no desire to go see the capital of the nation, the District of Columbia, which, by the way, can't become a state no matter what SCOTUS says, but be that as it may. Um, when you literally make things up, that, that's, that's the other thing we want to go with here. See, the whole idea of would you rather is when you can literally make things up, which is what happens under judicial supremacy and federal supremacy, you can get away with whatever you want and there's no recourse. You have nothing you can do. All except for this little thing called interposition, right? But that's apparently not allowed. The lesser magistrate's not allowed to say, well, no, you're being tyrannical. We're not going to allow you to do that here. But in a unitary state, that's near impossible. But in a federal system, which is what we live under, 
Individual states can say, yeah, that's fine, feds, but we don't think so. We don't approve of that. And even some cities and, and counties within the states will push back and say, yeah, you can do that, but we're not going to enforce that, which actually happened 18 months ago, right? So these are the benefits. That's why I ask, would you rather? So now that I've given you these definitions and I've kind of explained some of the pluses and minuses of it, let me transition. Because as, as you know, we finished a process called redistricting. Now, at one point in time, they were supposed to reapportion and add seats for Congress. But somewhere in the 1940s, they just determined they weren't going to do that anymore, even though it was constitutionally required. So you might ask yourself, well, what good is it to have a constitution if we don't make the people follow it? Good question. And I would suggest that the answer is it's not any good at all. It fails to do what it's supposed to do. But is that the piece of paper's fault? Is that the written document's fault? Or is that our fault because we did not enforce it? Is it our fault because we didn't hold these people accountable? I think you know what my answer is. So when the redistricting happens, because we've grown significantly in the state of Texas and different areas have grown more than others, we get more representation than compared to another state. But in the state of Texas, because we've constitutionally limited the number of representatives and senators that we get, they just move them around and change the lines of the areas that they cover. Now, there's pluses and minuses to that as well. And both sides will call it gerrymandering when the other side does it. And quite frankly, I, I think full disclosure is due here. We have to go under the assumption of three things. The first is, first and foremost, all incumbents must be protected. Now, there's a few times that that breaks that rule. And that's because it flows into rule number two. So rule number one is protect incumbents. Rule number two, protect and expand the party in powers seats, if at all possible. So sometimes that means you have to sacrifice an incumbent to get another seat or you have to, or you'll take out an incumbent to try and steal a seat. Again, and then rule number three, Pick your constituents. Now, ideally, what should result is the representative that we have should better reflect us if he actually gets to choose the people that he's representing. But that's really an outcome of the first two principles. And I'm not distraught over this. I, I don't think this is the end of the world. I don't, I don't see this as a crime against humanity. I just accept that's what it is. And both sides do it. And it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it wrong. It just is. And if you accept that and you work with it, then you can maybe get some outcomes that are better. So there's not a lot of people that want to take the time, money, and effort to go after an incumbent. And keeping in mind that incumbents get to redraw their districts to protect them. But it doesn't always work out that way. It doesn't always mean that just because you have a representative, which it could be a state senator, state representative, a U.S. representative, just because you have them doesn't mean you get to have them forever. 
indeed the county redistricts certain things and then the cities redistrict and all that changes and they they try to adjust for the population they try to balance it out and again both parties do it to increase their own power and protect their incumbents again it's understood there's no see, no reason to get upset about it it's just the way it is the issue that some notice and, and i think it's a good thing to notice is when certain population groups give 90% or 75% of their votes to one party or another. Now, both parties know this, and at least one party is not going to be happy about it. So why would you not expect them to defend themselves against it? Perhaps, just a thought here, but perhaps it would do some good to those individual groups that, always do the same thing to change up how they do things for a little bit maybe you go and recruit your own candidate and you run them in the dominant party and when your candidate runs in that dominant party and you put all your weight behind that candidate maybe you change a little something maybe you make a difference maybe people take notice you know something could be said that even though there's two parties there's actually multiple factions within each party And I know from my own experiences that there are plenty of people in the party I don't belong to that are perfectly nice, rational, you know, kind-hearted people. And I don't say that to be rude. I just mean, by my definition, and that's, again, all this is about is the helpful definitions here, that's what's there. And we can work together and we can get better representation. Now, and again, I'll say this because I feel like I have to add this clause or disclosure or whatever. I'm actually pretty happy with the representation we get out of Collin County. And I think they do a pretty good job of representing Collin County from where we are as a county as a whole. And I know there's some people on both sides of the aisle that are not happy. And I'd like to believe that If we put the bell curve on the population, all the representatives would fall within probably two standard deviations of the population mean. It's not very exciting. That's not very um, happy situation if you're, you know, hardcore, real conservative. Likewise, it doesn't make you happy if you're hardcore progressive. Neither one of you is going to get exactly what you want anytime fast. But you have to give credit where credit's due. The progressives are a whole lot better at the long game than we are. So I hope you find that this was somewhat enlightening, somewhat entertaining, and perhaps even informative. To give you a little peek into the mind of the way I would define things. And the takeaway here is just because I defined it this way, I'm not saying this is the actual God honest fact and you can't disagree or you can't find fault with it. I'm just giving you a frame of reference. So when I refer to things or when I say things, you have a pretty good idea where I'm coming from. And one last thing. So from time to time, you might have heard me or somebody else say, well, that person's a good Republican. That can be taken two ways, depending on the context and who you're speaking of. 
So if you say somebody's a good Republican, you could mean, well, they're not really conservative by the various definitions, or they're not really mm, doggedly, but they're a good member of the party, and they, they, they stand for the party. They do the right thing as far as the party's concerned. That's a more benign version. The less benign version is they don't question anything. They don't uh, have their own thought process. They just do what they're told. And they're, uh, I think, also called party hacks. But I'm not going to go there. I I wouldn't want to point fingers. I don't think that's fair. I mean, there's a lot of pressure on these folks. And real or imagined, they kind of have to toe the line to keep certain people happy. And as long as they're not violating their core principles and as long as they're generally doing what we want, there's nothing wrong with that. And then there is the, well, that person's a good Republican. That means I don't know that person very well, but I see how he votes or see what she's done in public without knowing I'm just vouching that they're a solid person. So there's at least three different takes on that. So depending on who's talking, what the context is, and maybe the tone inflection, you can pick up on the signals there. (laughs) And again, I, I hope this has been... Worth your time. This is episode 147, part two of Helpful Definitions. And I will see you on the other side.